I think I said one other time that I'm a big picture person. I like to see the big picture. My wife is detailed. She likes the little things, and that's fine because that, that's how we compliment. But what I want to do this morning, I hope you have Bibles, or I hope you have at least access to Ephesians, because what I'd like to do this morning is go back over a big picture concept with you and then look at the passage that we're dealing with because I think context is important. Scott introduced it this morning when he was reading, saying we're in a spiritual battle. And we often take this passage that talks about getting ready for battle and putting on the armor and we go, in the world... We're in a battle, and that's true. It is totally true. But I'd like to open, unpack this today within its context. The context of Ephesians is interesting. So let me begin. If you have your Bibles, just look with me at Ephesians chapter 1 real quickly. I'm just going to point out a couple things. Here's what Paul does. Here's the big picture. Okay, The book of Ephesians, we can divide up in two parts. The first part is chapters 1 and 2. And what Paul does is he paints for us, he puts on the wall the big, amazing things that God has done for us. We call that theology. He brings out some things that are amazing. Let me show you a few of them. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Did you realize that God has blessed you? He has given you, and he goes on to list, an inheritance. You have been adopted. You have been redeemed. Chapter 1 unpacks these amazing concepts we call theology, having to do with what God has done for you. Each one of these verses could be a sermon in itself. What does it mean that you were adopted into God's family? That's what it says. It says in verse 5, predestined us unto the adoption of children. That means you weren't a part of the family, but you've been brought in, and now you have all the rights of a regular child. You've been adopted. Redeemed, verse 7. You've been redeemed. You know what that means? You were in the slave market of sin. Redeemed means bought out of. You've been bought out of the slave market of sin. You were born into the slave market. And by the blood of Jesus, you have been bought out of that. Each of these concepts are supreme. They're magnificent. We could just chew on them. They're like meat. You could go, oh, wow, this is amazing. Keep going. Verse 13, you've been sealed. Did you know that when God saved you, he gave you, he put a seal on your life that proves that you are forever his. It says you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He's the down payment to make sure that the rest of it is coming. Your salvation has been sealed. The rest of it is coming for sure. It's a promise of God. Continuing with chapter 2, let's jump in there. Chapter 2, he talks about our previous life and how God, who is rich in mercy, look at verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, what did he do? He loved you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive. These are incredible truths. 
Verse 10, you are his workmanship. Did you know he made you exactly the way he wanted you to be? You are a creation of God for a purpose. The Hebrew, the Greek word for workmanship is poema. You are a creation of God, a literal creation of God to show forth the praises of God. He made you because he knew you had a job to do just the way you are. Keep going, chapter 2. Now let's go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, there's a tiny parenthesis to all these great truths. Paul, as he's explaining these great truths of God, he goes, but let me just tell you a minute. God chose me to be a minister and to reveal these things. For this cause, Paul, verse 1, prisoner of Jesus. By revelation, verse 3, he made known unto me this mystery. Paul says, you know, I had this special privilege of taking these tremendous truths of God and bringing them to you. See, Paul had been the pastor of the church of Ephesus for three years. He knew these people. And he said, God gave me the special privilege of bringing these truths to you. Then in chapter 4, everything changes. After Paul has written on the wall all these beautiful things, these theological heavy, heavy things, redemption, adoption, all these things being sealed by the Spirit, he goes, now, based on all that, here's how we need to live. And in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins to talk about the walk of the believer. Now that you know all these things, here's how you're to walk. Verse 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. And he begins to spell out the different parts of our walk and also our talk. Sometimes he gets pretty specific. Sometimes it's more general. Like, for instance, chapter 3, endeavoring to keep the unity. How should we walk, knowing all these things that he has talked about? How should we walk? Keep the unity of the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 11, he talks about God has given us pastors and teachers to help us in this walk. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. Pastors and teachers and apostles aren't to do all the work. They're to help us do the work. That's what it says. For the perfecting of the saints for the work. Who's supposed to do this? We are. God gave us gifts of pastors and teachers for this job. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of faith. The goal is unity. We're working together on these. Verse 15 Speak the truth in love. Another thing that we need. How should we walk? Speak the truth in love. There's a balance there. My wife and I get into this little uh, debate once in a while. Is it more important to be kind or to be true <laughs> or right? <laughs> kind or right? <laughs> well, there needs to be a balance. You see, if you're overly kind but not right... You gloss over what probably needs to be spoken. If you're overly right but not kind, you can be pretty abrasive. There's got to be a balance. That's what he says in verse 15. Speak the truth in love. It's got to be both. 
You see, this has to do with our walk. Knowing all of these things, how should we walk? How should we talk? He goes on. Verse 22, he says, put off things of the old man. How should we walk knowing all these things are true? Ah, put off, put off. Somebody said one time, well, if we're a new creation in Christ, how, how are we supposed to put off old things? I thought when you become a new creation, old things are passed away. You never have any problem with sin. You never have any problem. Eh, not true. Let me explain it this way. Um, that's why Paul says, put off the things that had to do with your former life. We live on a dirt road. Those of you who have been out to our house, we're at the end of a dirt road. When it rains, there's something about Arizona and clay. Our road turns into pudding. There's like six inches of pudding on our road after the rains. It just gets worse and worse. And finally, I, I know my wife got stuck out there one time. We had to go push her. We get these ruts where if you drive in the same place, you get ruts. So we try to drive on the crown, but every once in a while you slide into the ruts. Okay, think of that illustration. There are ruts in the road. You want to avoid them, but every once in a while you slide back into them. And once you slide into them, chances are you're going to bottom out because the wheels are going to go down. Listen, how is it that Paul says put off things from the former life? I personally believe that our old nature, after having walked in those things and fallen into sin, they're ruts, and we can very easily fall back into those patterns and those habits. Paul says, put them off. Don't get back into the ruts. Verse 22, put off. Verse 24, put on. Constantly go for the higher ground. Go for the crown of the road. Stay out of the ruts. This all has to do with our walk and our talk based on what we know to be true in the first two chapters. <clears throat> then he says, verse 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, put those away. Get them off. Get them out of here. Verse, or chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. He's still talking about walk. Chapter 5, verse 8, for you sometimes were in darkness, but are now light. And walk as children of the light. You get the picture? He's talking about our walk and our talk. Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly. Be aware of what's going on around you. Walk and talk based on what we know to be true in chapters 1 and 2. And then Paul gets really specific and for some people, it gets a little uncomfortable. Because in verse 22, he talks to wives specifically. Now remember, we're in the walk and talk section here. How should we walk and talk? Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands and the Lord. As unto the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 24. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Getting pretty specific here about the walk and the talk. And then last week, Scott unpacked verses 1 to 9 in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents. Verse 5, servants, obey your masters. And then masters, 
Verse 9, do the same to them, to your servants. Respect your servants. He's getting pretty specific here on the walk and the talk. Now, let me go back to the wall. He painted for us these great spiritual truths of how we were in darkness. We've been redeemed. We've been adopted. We've been sealed with the Spirit of God. We walked in darkness, and God, with his great mercy, rescued us. And he says, okay, here's how we're to live. Here's how we're to walk and we're to talk. And I'm going to get real specific. Families, employment, those things should affect the way we live in those settings. Now, I'm trying to put myself in the mind of the Apostle Paul because he's just painted two big things. And then he stops in verse 6 of chapter, or verse 10 of chapter 6. And he goes, finally, my brethren, based on everything that I've just said, there's one more thing I've got to tie in here. And it's the word henceforth, or to wrap it up, I need to say this. Look what he says. He goes, finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You know what he's saying? Based on what you know to be true, here's how you're to walk and talk. But the little parenthesis is, it ain't going to happen unless something, unless you know something. None of this is going to happen. What? What is it that we need to know? We need to know we're in a battle. We're up against a formidable enemy that doesn't want us to do this. Walk and talk. How do we know that? Well, look what he says. Finally, my brethren, based on all that I've said, I'm going to wrap it up with this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say be strong in yourself. Muster up enough strength to make this happen. Now, for some of you that love grammar, I know some of you go, oh, grammar, ooh, we're subject in school. Can I just point out one little thing here? In grammar, we have what we call tense, past tense, present tense, future tense. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, we talk in terms of tenses. Yesterday I did this, tomorrow I will do that, tense. But there's another important aspect of grammar, and it comes out in other languages a little more than English, but you will understand it. It's called active and passive. Voice. Let me explain. Active voice. I speak. That's present tense, active voice. Present today, I speak. Actively. Voice refers to the direction of the action. Okay. I speak. Passive voice. I am spoken to. See the difference? I speak, active, passive, I am spoken to. It's a component of grammar. And in the Greek language, it changes the whole ending of the verb. It doesn't in English, but you understand what I'm saying, I hope. Active, I speak. Passive, I am spoken to. It's amazing that the Apostle Paul in verse 10 uses the passive voice. Look what it says. Finally, my brethren. Now, some of the translations go, be strong in the Lord. And that's okay, because that's the ultimate goal, is to be strong. But he uses the passive tense, be strengthened. 
in the Lord and in the power of his might. I think the NIV changes it and puts it, uh, translates it that way, but it's passive. Paul is making a point here. He's saying, folks, this isn't going to happen unless something is done to you. You are strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might. You see, what Paul's trying to make clear is this isn't just hard. It's impossible. Somebody asked a question one time, is the Christian life hard? No, it's impossible. It's impossible unless God strengthens you. You can't do it. You can't muster up enough strength to make this happen, to do the walk and the talk that Paul's talking about. You can't. So Paul stops, and this little parenthesis, and in his mind, I think he's saying, i got to explain something here. Lest they get the idea that this walk and talk is just something we have to do. He goes, let me explain that there's a battle. And there's two responsibilities here in the battle. You have the responsibility of putting on the armor. And we're going to see that every one of these is an active voice. But the strengthening is in passive voice. Meaning God will strengthen you as you do the following. And he presents six components of the armor that you and I have to do. We put it on. God strengthens. Are you all following me here? Because the question might be, well, what do I do? Put on the armor. You can do that. Only God can strengthen. You can put the armor on. So let's go through it. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strengthened. Passive voice. In the Lord and in the power of his might. Okay, here are the active components. Active verb. Put on. Doesn't say God will put it on. It says you put it on. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he interjects verse 12. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, Lest that scare you and you go, oh no, that sounds pretty weird. Spiritual wickedness in high places, rulers of darkness. Let me say something that will comfort you in this. Did you know that Satan is not omnipresent and omniscient? He doesn't know everything and he's not everywhere at once. There's a reason why there's spiritual wickedness in high places what he describes here and the rulers of darkness because Satan doesn't know everything and he's got his minions who are running around reporting to him about every single detail on this planet. It's the only way he operates. Yes, he's a formidable enemy but we've got a greater God, don't we? We've got a God who knows everything and is everywhere at once. (laughs) We're on his side. But Paul's painting a picture of the enemy who really (laughs) relies on the information from his minions who are all over the place coming back and forth telling him, oh, did you hear about John? Oh, do that. Oh, did you hear this? And he's getting all this information. We serve a God who is greater. 
And I just want to comfort you with that. Don't get scared about this spiritual wickedness in high places. It's a description of how he has to work. But we've got a greater God. Verse 13. Therefore, here's another active verb. Take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having all done to stand. Here's another one, verse 14. Stand, active voice. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, I began by saying sometimes we take this battle description and we go, well, that's going on in the world. We're up against something heavy in the world. It's true. But Paul's talking about our walk and our talk. And a lot of this walk and talk had to do with the family, relationships in the work, relationships in church, being under the teaching of the pastors, prophets, apostles. So let's not take it out of its context. There's a battle going on right here for the unity of the spirit, as Paul described. Every one of these armors, this this armor that you can put on, can directly go back and relate to the things he's talked about with the walk and the talk. Yes, it's going on in the world, But Paul wants us to know that as we live in the body, in our families, and go to work, there's a battle going on there too. So the first thing he says to put on, and I'm not going to unpack these to an extreme. Some people I know take belt and they try and say, well, it's made out of leather and there's a buckle and and they try and add too much to it. Here's what I think Paul is doing. I think he's generally looking at a soldier, and is that picture available? Okay, looking at a soldier and saying, look at the armor and going, you know what, we've got armor too. And here's what we need to do. So we're going to start, I'm going to deal with three. I think Scott's going to talk about three next week or maybe two and spread it out. Um, But we're talking about the belt of truth right there in the middle. He says, wherefore, or verse 14, Having your stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. How is it that this belt is a belt of truth? Well, in Jesus' time, they wore tunics and they wore robes and things, and it was kind of cumbersome to do a whole lot. Even Jesus said, I think it was in Luke chapter 14, he said, having your loins girt about, be ready to serve. In other words, what they would do is they would take their tunic and kind of pull it up, maybe up through their legs, and and tie it with a belt, and it became like pants (laughs) or shorts, and they could run or they could walk. But as long as they had this cumbersome tunic on, they were a little bit confined. The belt of truth is kind of what held things together and made them alert and attentive and ready for action. Now think about that. How does truth, how does reading and taking in the truth of God make you alert and ready? I think what it does is it changes your attitude. Instead of being passive, sitting back and going, okay, God, you need to strengthen me now, because that's, that's what it says in verse 10, need to be strengthened in the Lord. Just go ahead and do it, Lord. No. As we read the truth of God's word and we let truth sink in, it makes us alert and responsive to what's going on. 
the belt of truth. Don't underestimate truth. Um, I often say when I grew up, my parents loved verses. And they had us memorizing and different things. But I remember in every room of the house, my mom and my dad would put a verse up. You couldn't even go in the bathroom without seeing a verse or kitchen a verse, living room. The garage had a verse. What, was, what were they trying to do? Keep truth in front of us at all times. And I think that's what we need to do. That's just a practical thing. So Paul, here's what he's saying. Based on all that you know, here's how you are to walk and talk. But you got to be absorbing the truth because that truth will be like a belt that'll keep you alert and ready to act. Let's move on. Verse 14. After he says the loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate up there is what protected the vital organs, the heart. Breastplate of righteousness. How do you put on righteousness? Righteousness is a big word, but you know what it means? It means what's right. Let's not make it too complicated. Righteousness is just doing what's right. How is your heart protected? You do what's right. I remember a while ago, a year or two ago, I was talking to an individual, and you don't know him, so you don't have to worry about, in your mind, say, oh, I know who he's talking about. <laughs> um, he came to me and he says, you know, I'm just beside myself. My wife disrespects me. I walk in the door, and it's nothing but criticism. It's nothing but what I'm doing wrong. My wife disrespects me. She belittles me in front of other people. And I'm ready to walk out. And I, I said to him, what's the right thing to do? Well, I don't know. I have rights too, you know. I said, no, what's the right thing to do? Ephesians 5.24, husbands, love your wives. What's the right thing to do? Love her. Does it say in, in chapter 5, verse 24, if your wife treats you well, then you love her? Is that what it says? Is there an if? Is there a condition in there? No, the right thing to do. You see, when you choose the right, the righteousness of God, you're protecting your heart. Are you all following me here? Righteousness, doing what is right, that's our responsibility. You let God fix the rest, but you guard your heart with righteousness. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm just using that example because he came to me with that, but you take whatever. You can take children, it says, obey your parents in the Lord. Kid comes says, but you don't know my mom. My mom is, ah, she's unbearable. What's the right thing to do? What's the right thing? Guard yourself with righteousness. You see, as you put on the armor, as we do what the actively what we're told to do, God does the strengthening. We're not told to muster the strength up on our own. Last one. Verse 15 that I'll talk about, feed, or feet, I'm off the farm here, feed, feet shod 
with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So you see there, he's got his shoes on, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I find it interesting that in the midst of a description of combat, he talks about peace. How's that? How's that? Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled evil and good. He's taken care of the sin problem and brought you into the presence of a holy God. That's the gospel. Romans says you have peace with God through the gospel. Realizing what God has done in my life, maybe going back to these principles that are on the wall here, that you were in darkness and God in his great mercy saved you. He redeemed you out of the slave market of sin. He adopted you. You weren't one of his children, but he made you one of his children, gave you all the rights. Maybe going back and reviewing that (laughs) will make you more sensitive to other people and make you willing to move and go with the gospel. As I said before, this isn't just hard, this is impossible. But we often, I think, fall to the lie of the devil that there's not really a battle going on. It's not really that bad. Kitty and I come from back east. I was born north of the Mason-Dixon line in Pennsylvania in the north. And she was born below the Mason-Dixon line. (laughs) So if you know your history, the Civil War happened between northern and and the south. So I'm not saying there's still a Civil War going on between us. (laughs) But we grew up in those areas where there's a lot of rich history. And uh, there was a picnic one time that happened. People traveled about 20, roughly 25 miles to go to this picnic. I'll tell you about the picnic. The picnic was going to happen on the side of a hill. People took their lunches, traveled down to probably the distance between here and Cordy's maybe, or here in Paulden, because there was going to be an event that was going to happen in the small valley. And entrepreneurs brought carts horse-drawn carts with food. It was going to be a pretty interesting event. Even congressmen went to see this. Ladies with their parasols. It was a warm summer morning, July 21st, 1861. And uh, they went down to see what was going to be, they thought, a small little squirmish. You see, the the north or the south wanted to secede remove themselves from the Union, and they had put together some militias. And uh, Abraham Lincoln sent an army under the command of General McDowell, I think his name was, to go and squelch this little militia down in northern Virginia. It was in the Valley of Bull Run. Look it up. Bull Run is a little stream down in the middle, uh, bottom of a valley in near Manassas, Virginia. People went took their lunches for this Sunday afternoon skirmish they thought would be done quickly, and they wanted to go see it. 35,000 soldiers in the Union Army marched down for this event. The historians, the eyewitnesses, all those who saw it, said that when 
people assembled on the hillside, a small valley. The Northern Army came in one end. The Confederate Army under General Beauregard came in on the other end. When the bullets started flying and the gunpowder was going off, it didn't take long for the people on the hillside to abandon their lunches and run for cover. They thought it was just going to be a little thing. In fact, it was nicknamed the picnic battle by reporters. It lasted probably about four hours, four or five hours. At the end of four and five hours, 5,000 soldiers lay dead. And here's why. Because as they fired their weapons with gunpowder, the whole valley filled up with smoke. People became disoriented. They didn't even know which direction was up or down or which way was north. Bugles were sounding. People didn't know. They could hear it, but they couldn't tell which side it was. In the end, the army, the, the northern army retreated, headed back, lost 2,600 men. The southern army, the Confederate army, lost a little over 2,000. Chaos. They said that horses were spooked and just started running through, knocking over soldiers. Soldiers shooting into the smoke were killing their own people. It was absolute chaos. The picnic battle. And what they say is the Union Army retreated back to Washington 25 miles away. The Southern Army, the Confederate Army, was the one that won. They routed them. What happened? As historians look at this, and you can read all the accounts, the eyewitness accounts, they said, number one, the Union Army underestimated the power of the Confederate Army. They were equally matched with 35,000 and about 3,400 or 34,000, just about equally. Not all of them could fit in the small valley, but the Confederate Army had backups. In fact, they had a guy named Thomas Jackson who, who brought up a militia from Manassas, and he stood his ground and would not let the Union Army advance any further. He became known as Stonewall Jackson, one of the great army or generals of the Confederate. That's where he got his nickname, because he stood fast. Another militia came to help. The Union Army had no idea what they were up against. The people eating their lunches, no idea. And they say that numerous people sitting on the mountain on the hillside were shot too, as bullets were just flying everywhere. So number one, they underestimated the power and the might of the Confederate Army. Number two, most of these recruits from the Northern Army were brand new. The War Department had issued a proclamation to inscript people for 90 days. They thought this thing would be over in 90 days. So they got all these new recruits, marched them down. None of them had ever been in battle before. It had been 90 years since the Revolutionary War, gaining independence from Britain. We hadn't seen a war. Nobody knew what war was. These young men hadn't seen war. So they were totally unprepared for what was going to happen. And then number three, probably most important, nobody realized the circumstances. A small valley with incredible gunpowder, <laughs> firepower going off, 
Who would have ever thought that that would be a little bottle full of smoke so thick nobody could see what was going on? Who would have ever thought? So the circumstances were against him. Here's my point. We dare not treat this battle like a picnic battle. We dare not say, oh, it's okay. Oh, it'll be over soon. In fact, as you know, the Civil War went on for five years, four years. 653,000 soldiers died in the Civil War. What started out as the first battle of the Civil War, which should have only lasted a short time, they thought, strung out for four years with incredible loss of lives and devastation and destruction of farms and property. Why? They underestimated the power of the enemy. And on April 9th, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered, surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, and ended the Civil War. And you may say, well, that's great, it all ended. No. Six days later, there was another casualty. I know because it's my birthday, April 15th. President Abraham Lincoln, sitting in a theater, was killed by John Wilkes Booth. Six days after the end of the Civil War. You see, the war continued. It didn't stop there. War is a terrible thing. But I think it's worse when we underestimate the power of the enemy and we go in unprepared. That's why Paul takes the time in his letter to the people he loved, describing the great truths of who we are and what we have in Christ and saying, okay, now walk and talk like you represent those things. But let me tell you something. It's not going to be hard. It's going to be impossible. And it's a battle like you have never seen before. So what do you do? You be strengthened. How? By putting on. Your job is to put on. God's job to strengthen. Now you may say, well, Paul, where'd you get that idea? Let me just rehearse. This has been the modus operandus of Jesus all along. Think of the miracles of Jesus. Remember when he went to the Cana, the wedding of Cana? They ran out of wine. His mother says, Jesus, we have no wine. He says, what have I to do with you? It's not my time yet. However, okay. He says, fill the water pots with water. Now let me ask you, why didn't Jesus fill them? Because that's something we disciples can do. And then he says, take it, dip, get some, and go give it to the master. He changed it to wine. Why didn't he tell the disciples to change it to wine? Because he only does the impossible. See the point? He will not do for you what you can do. So he tells the disciples to fill it with water because disciples can do that. And then he changes it to wine. Because only he can do that. Listen, he tells you to put on your armor. You know why? Because you can do it. He's not going to do it for you. He only does the impossible, which is to strengthen you for battle. The last of the miracles of Jesus, Jesus goes to a town of Bethany and a man's died, his best friend. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. 
Why did he weep? Because he realized the effect of sin and what it had done to his, his friend, Lazarus. And he walks up and he goes, roll the stone away. And right away is the young lady says, but Lord, it's been four days. He stinks. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now watch the interplay here. Roll the stone. Why didn't he roll the stone? Because humans can roll a stone. He calls Lazarus forth. Why didn't he tell them to call? Because humans can't do that. Get it? And then when Lazarus walks out all bound up, he goes, unwrap the guy. Why didn't Jesus unwrap him? Because they can do it. He never crosses that line of human responsibility. He's not going to do for you what you can do for yourself. You are responsible, and then he does the impossible. It's the way he's operated. You look at the other miracles. I won't take time, but the feeding of the 5,000. Why did he use a kid's lunch? Because they had it. Why didn't he just produce it? Because he waited for them to bring the lunch. It's the way he operates. So Paul is stopping, I believe, and he's saying, this is a battle. This is a, we're in war here. We're up against the impossible. But don't lose heart. You've got an active part in this. You've got these things you can put on, the belt of truth, feet, breastplate of righteousness. Do it. And then he'll do the passive part. He will be strengthening you. You will receive the strengthening from him. Now, one last thing. <clears throat> you may say, well, you know, this church must have been a pretty amazing church. They had the Apostle Paul as their, as their pastor. Timothy went there. He was pastoring there for a while. Um, tradition tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to be there too because John was there for a while. And remember, John was told to take care of Mary. The church at Ephesus had some amazing people working. They must have been the perfect church. In fact, they had this letter written to them by Paul. Must not have had any problems. <laughs> John the Apostle was probably the youngest of the disciples, and he lived the longest. And around 90 AD, long after the other disciples have died, John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and he writes back to the church of Ephesus. Let me just read you what he said. In his book, in his letter of Revelation, Here's what he says. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now this is years later. These things saith he that hold, this is Revelation 2.1, holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Here's God's word to the church of Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them that say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. You have borne and have been patient for my name's sake. You have labored. You have not fainted. John, before he dies, writes to the church of Ephesus and says, You are a working church. 
God sees what you're doing. You're doing a lot of great things. And if it ended there, we'd go, wow, that's great. I guess they listened to what Paul said. Paul painted the picture of, who, of all that we have in God and how we're to walk and talk. I guess they were walk and talk people. Revelation 2, 3, or verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. You have lost your first, or left your first love. There's another battle that John brings up. And I'm only bringing this up because it ties in with Ephesus. Here's the battle. You realize all the great things that God has done for you. you these truths of God's word sink in. You become a walking and talking person and you're doing all these things. But unless you go back and refresh in your mind again, the truths. You know what happens to your walk and talk? It becomes something traditional, something ordinary. My dad used to say that people as well as organizations go through four phases. You have a man, a mission, you have a machine, and you have a monument. You have a man on a mission. But you better be careful because your doing can often become a machine. Well, we're just doing this. Why are you doing it? Well, it's the thing to do. And you forget back here where you came from. And pretty soon you become a monument. You know, today you can go to Ephesus and it's a monument. The sad thing is that the church of Ephesus became a machine doing and doing. That's what John says. You're doing a lot of things but you have left your first love. And then look what he says, verse 5. Here's the solution. If you are becoming a machine and you're just doing and doing, here's what John tells you to do. Verse 5, he says, Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Go back and do what you used to do in the beginning. What you used to do? You sat there at the feet of Jesus and went, wow, thank you, God, that I'm redeemed. You've sealed me. You've adopted me. You brought me out of darkness. Paul, John says to the church that has become a machine, go back, go back, repent. Go back and do the things you did in the beginning. Go back and sit at the feet of an almighty God and repent. Sadly, the church of Ephesus didn't do it. And today they're a monument. What a sad thing when an organization or a church or even a person goes from being a man with a mission to know God, serve God, becomes a machine, and then in the end just becomes a monument to something that used to be but no longer is. John says if you're in that process of being a machine, Go back. Go back. Repent before it's too late. Go back and do the things you used to do. Because you've left your first love. Your first love was back here. So what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians, he's painting the picture. He's telling us how to walk and talk. But you know what? We have the privilege of going back and reading the book over again. 
back and forth. It's a cycle. That's what keeps it fresh, going back, going back.